On this episode of the BYO Nano Podcast, starting a brewery from scratch is hard, but so is taking over an existing one. Our panel of experts is here to talk through the many layers that come with buying and running an existing brewery business. This is John Hall, and welcome to episode 33. We're going to be talking about best practices and advice for someone who wants to take over a small or existing brewery. The idea came from a listener who wrote, I'm someone who's overwhelmed by the non-beer aspects of starting up a taproom from scratch. Legal, regulatory, architectural design and layout, branding, marketing, and a blank sheet of paper. I've explored a couple of tap rooms and small brew pubs for sale. What's a smart way to go about this? So that's the jumping off point we'll start with from the from scratch aspect. And then we're going to transition into what it takes to acquire an existing brewery. The lessons shared are also applicable to someone just starting off as well. But first, a word of thanks to the show sponsors, and we hope you'll give them a closer look. Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing equipment is the right choice for pro results. Whether it's for your pilot system or production line, their robust systems come fully equipped with everything you need to hit the ground running. Designed for easy setup and intuitive use, their brew house systems and cellaring equipment deliver uncompromising quality and reliability backed by a name you trust. So you can focus on what matters most, your beer. Visit BlickmanPro.com today. And we're brought to you by Fermentis. Try adding a cider to your brews. Fermentis, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, has made it really easy for you by developing four strains specifically for cider. Whether you want a crisp, sweet, or fruity cider, discover the Safe Cider range. The four cider strains are available in five gram pouches, the perfect size for you. Just make your choice or try them all. To learn more about how Fermentis can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentis.com. And we're brought to you by ABS Commercial, a full-service brewery outfitter, proud to offer brew houses, tanks, and small parts to brewers across the country. They stock equipment ranging from 3-barrel to 90-barrel and offer custom-designed equipment up to 900 barrels. Contact one of their brewery consultants today by emailing sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your brewery project. And you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nanoplus for more details. So let's talk about taking over a brewery or starting one from scratch. Our panel has great insight into all of this, and it's my pleasure this episode to be joined by John Carpenter. John began his career as a summer brewing intern at Drake's Brewing in 2002 while attending UC Davis studying brewing science. After graduation, he went on to work for Anheuser-Busch in their research pilot brewery. And from there, he moved on to Dogfish Head and then Golden Road, followed by Alchemy and Science, the Boston beer collection of breweries. Today, he works at OpenSo Consulting, an independent brewery and craft beverage consulting firm. Michael Brewer is the president of Alcoholic Beverage Consulting Service, a leading alcoholic beverage licensing firm. Alcoholic Beverage Consulting Service represents numerous alcoholic beverage licensees in all segments of the alcohol industry. 
Brewer was a regulatory auditor for the United States Customs Service and holds a master's degree in accounting from San Diego State University. And Matthew McLaughlin is the founder of McLaughlin PC, a boutique commercial law firm specializing in the beverage industry. He's represented breweries and distilleries throughout the United States for nearly 20 years, advising clients on business entity formation, ownership structure, startup financing and expansion financing, federal and state regulatory matters and intellectual property. He's also served as the executive director of the Mississippi Brewers Guild and was instrumental in the passage of House Bill 1322, a bill that expanded the retail sales opportunities for breweries in Mississippi and fundamentally changed Mississippi's brew pub laws. In April 2017, at the Brewers Association's annual Craft Brewers Conference, Matthew received the FX Matt Defense of the Industry Award. John, I, I want to start with you because you've been in breweries of, of, of all sizes throughout your career. And now you're, you're talking with folks who are, who are getting into the game or uh, trying to, to come up with, with new ways of staying relevant or, or growing. Um, if somebody was going to start a tap room from scratch, especially now in 2022, what is the very first thing you would encourage them to be thinking about? I mean, for me, it always comes down to why. You know, why are you doing this? What is your point of differentiation? What is your passion? What makes it a reason that not only is this going to be fun for you, but it's also going to provide value to your community. And it's going to be different enough to set you apart from what's already being offered now that we're looking at such a world where, you know, very interesting, well-crafted, unique beers are available at an arm's reach, almost everything. Going beyond the why, Michael, I want to ask you, what do you think is the first thing you'd oh. encourage people to be thinking about? I mean, I get this call a lot of people because they always call me about the regulation. How do I get my licenses and things like that? But even before that, I kind of asked them, have they looked at the market in which they want to locate? Um, you know, the saturation of breweries, especially where I'm located in Southern California, um, is really heavy. So I always ask them, you know, have you looked at the number of breweries around you? Have you visited them all? Have you kind of come up with a, an idea of where you want to locate? And then it comes back to, uh, uh, I think it was John's comment about why. You know, why are you going to stand out from all the existing breweries that are already there? Matthew, same question to you. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I always want to focus in on, you know, get to know your market really well before you even consider starting to look at a location because you're going to want to try and find uh, a gap somewhere where a local brewery isn't filling a demand that's needed. Matthew, does that jive with you? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything that, that John and Michael said. Um, you know, I'm, it's a very kind of Simon Sinek way of, of viewing things, but but I agree that people, you know, people buy the why you're doing something, not necessarily the what. I mean, the industry is is full of, you know, a lot of people making um, really good, uh, sometimes great liquid, um, but I think, you know, the why is critically important. Getting beyond that, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, when you're talking about a taproom focused brewery or a taproom, 
to me, it, it's all about location, location, location. Um, I mean, it is a retail type environment, you know, so, you know, outside of the why and where you fit generally in, in the community, I think the location is, is critically important. You know, is there, do you have, uh, is there a residential component? Um, is it a dense walkable neighborhood? Do you have adequate parking? You know, all of those kinds of things. We've, we've walked a whole bunch of people through that site selection process. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think it's, it's all about the location. John, has that been your experience? John, did we lose you here? Sorry, I was trying to be polite and be on mute when I wasn't talking <laughs> and then forgot. Um, One of the joys of Zoom, all good. Yeah, I, I mean, I think so, but I, I tend to go back into, you know, I, I always think foundationally, what got me involved in this and why did this whole, you know, momentum get developed behind craft beer and artisan-made products and all these other things. And again, it was, it was to provide value that wasn't available readily to whatever community you're in. And, and I mean that regionally as well as in, in a bigger sense. And so, you know, the location, 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 absolutely. If you're in a location that's busy, that has people who are craving this and they're underserved, then you're right in line to not only fulfill your passion, but also provide value to that community and have a sustainable business. Um, on the flip side, if you're someone who's just really passionate about it and can also reach out to a broader community and become a destination, there's, there's definitely business sense in that as well. It's certainly a harder road to go down, but you think back 20 years ago, I mean, that's what half of these businesses were doing. We didn't have money. We didn't have equipment. We were all, you know, learning how to weld so we could take the weirdest equipment we could find on the cheap and put it together and make something happen. You know, when Sam started Dogfish down in Rehoboth, it's not like, you know, that was a destination for beer lovers. It was a destination for people who want to party for a couple of years. <laughs> but he came down with his, his, you know, romance and his stories and his charisma and really between what he and Brian were doing down there provided value to a community that was otherwise just kind of out there to party and it became a destination. So, so I think there's both sides of it. You mentioned financing and some of those early days where there was a lot of bootstrapping because the industry didn't it, it didn't have the, the prominence that maybe it does today. Um, Matthew or Michael, what about financing, financing options? What should, you know, what can brewers be thinking about as they, as they get started um, from outside sources? Well, I think it's becoming Michael, yeah. more difficult to raise um, capital through, um, outside, you know, sources. It's, what I'm seeing is, you know, and most of the people that are coming into the industry, you know, they've been fans of beer, they've been home brewers, they're, they're advocates of the business. I mean, when they first come to me, I always suggest, well, have you worked in a commercial brewery before you decide to buy one? And I always encourage them to go do so. 
And the ones that my clients have been most successful in the industry are actually commercial brewers that are leaving another brewery to start and do their own thing because they they know the business, they understand it much better than the, the, the ones that are coming from the hobbyist area. But m- most of my guys are looking to their family, their friends, they have some capital they've saved up. And then, I mean, they do go out and sometimes raise capital in their local community, um, but it's harder and harder now to get that money. It was, again, I'm based in Southern California where you know, there's already a lot of breweries here. And so uh, the novelty of a new brewery isn't as exciting as it might be elsewhere in the country. Yeah, I, I agree with, with everything Michael said. You know, it, it's typically, um, you know, it is the sources of, of capital when you're, you know, sort of looking at it, um, typically come from three primary, um, three primary areas. One, kind of the founding team um, has to bring money to the table. You, you have to absolutely have something at risk um, if you don't then don't go ask for somebody else's money and certainly don't, don't go ask for a bank's money. Um, outside of the founding team, you know, there are, there's typically a, a gap to get um, the, the company from having enough equity to being able to, to leverage some debt. And so they have to raise money from outside investors. Um, my experience is, is that it's typically a close group of, of people um, friends, family, and, and I guess some fools that think they're going to get rich in this industry. <laughs> uh, and then there is bank financing. Um, most of our clients um, are having to utilize SBA type loan products, which, you know, I kind of call the loan of last resort um, just because they're heavy on the fee side. They're going to take everything um, all of your personal assets is sort of a secondary form of collateral. Um, so if, if a client has the ability to go a more traditional commercial loan route, we try to steer them that direction, but it seems like most folks end up going with a, an SBA type product. There's 9,000 plus breweries in the US right now. And there's a lot of talk of you know, people starting a brewery um, or, you know, hanging their own shingle for the, for the, for the first time. Um, but John, back to, 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 to your days um, or, you know, talking about the early days of Dogfish Head where, you know, it, 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 there was new ground to be broken. There's now a chance for somebody to take over an existing brewery. Um, people are starting to retire. People get into it and to decide that they're, they're, you know, they don't want to be in beer anymore for any number of reasons. Um, and so we're seeing breweries of all sizes change hands. And it's not just the big um, mergers and acquisitions that make the news. The, these are often just small tap rooms that that change ownership. Um, if, if somebody is thinking about having their own beer company, um, either taking over an existing one uh, and keeping everything intact or um, you know, putting their own name on it and their own spin and taking over an, an existing location. Um, Matthew, what's the, what's sort of the first steps of due diligence that you think these brewers should be taking? 
Um, yeah, so there are the due diligence process is um, it can be comprehensive and, and incredibly complicated. But that, during that period, you're kind of looking underneath the hood, trying to find you know where the skeletons are. Um, you know, if I'm a buyer, I am buying sort of prospective, you know, forward-looking risk in my ability to, you know, to operate the business. What I'm not buying is legacy risk, things that, um, you know, the previous owner, the soon-to-be previous owner did or didn't do. And so you're, you're really kind of looking at, at everything from, you know, real estate documents, trademark portfolios, um, contracts, bank statements, financials, sales data. I mean, ev everything that you could possibly think of. Um, we have a checklist that we start with on the acquisition side and we'll typically create a, an intranet type portal where documents can be dumped. Um, but, uh, but yeah, due diligence is, is, is critically important. Um, it, it, I would argue it's the most important part of any sort of acquisition. Um, it can it can make or make or break deals. And John, you've seen this firsthand. Oh yeah, and and I think there's so many parts of due diligence. It's it's one of these these terms that we toss around, and then you start dissecting it, and it's really just unimaginable how much goes into every different skill set in, in doing your due diligence and evaluating. Um, a change in ownership. I mean, it, it's not only it's not only about take, eating the elephant one bite at a time. It's about bringing in as many people as you can who are experts at eating certain parts of the elephant. And that's it's a gross and weird analogy to think of right now. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's a new one on me, but yeah, it's okay. It's, it takes a village to eat an elephant, apparently. Um, but but you know what what I find is once people start going through this process, the more humble they can be and the more they can lean on resources around them, whether it's paid or shoulder tapped, especially in a community like the craft beer industry or shoulder tapping does go a long way, the more you can illuminate the room before you walk into it, whether it's you know looking into the conditions on your use permit or evaluating the infrastructure from utilities, from you know, basic mechanical infrastructure, from what is the customer base like around here? Also, what does the community think of this facility? Is Does this facility in this previous brewery have a bad reputation? So sometimes even if you change the name and the ownership, that's a big hurdle to get over. But the idea of due diligence is, is kind of, I think, in a holistic way, what, what we're talking about here in general is, is how much can you learn about the history of where this, this business, this building, this brewery was before you actually get tied in to rebuilding it, either just partially or from the ground up and saying this is a whole new thing in the same spot. Yeah, you know, and I, I've invited, you know, a lot of clients come to me and early on and I always want to make sure that when they're starting their due diligence and, you know, even on a macro level, understanding the difference between a brew pub and a small production microbrewery, you know, understanding where, you know, if it's, you know, 90% of the brewery sales are being done at the brewery direct to consumer, or do they have 
uh, distribution model and is that distribution model you know, self-distribution or do they actually have relationships with wholesalers? Does it get to regional or is it only very local? I mean, there's a lot of things to ask and learn about the business. But one of the, the things I have with buyers is they have kind of a blinkers on that where they're, they're so excited about the opportunity of finally getting their dream of a brewery that they don't want to hear the negative. They kind of want to always look at the positive. And this is where they need to really be serious. I mean, they need to believe the financials when they look at them and not to say, well, they don't, the current operators don't know what they're doing because that's not always true. And they really need to understand the business that they're buying and, and realistically listen to their advisors. Don't just, you know, oh, well, that, you know, if somebody points out that there's a significant problem with the business that they don't just uh, disregard it or uh, not await the, the proper, uh, you know, information because of they're excited about getting there to their dream. Yeah, Mike, and I think to that point, how often do people say, oh, well, that's not going to be a problem for us. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, yeah. You better have a real good background to, to make that argument when a business went under that was also someone else's dream and passion. I want to I want to also I, I agree with everything yeah, that Michael and, and John both said, but I want to circle back to what um, John was talking about in in terms of a team. Due diligence necessitates an entire team. You know, you need a CPA, you need a lawyer, you need an engineer. Um, you need people that bring all sorts of different skill sets and areas of expertise to the table. And more specifically, find those people that have actually worked in the beer, brewing, craft beer industry. You know, don't bring in, you know, your, your cousin that has a solo practitioner, you know, CPA firm. Might be a nice person, but if they've never looked at a set of brewery financials, you're not, you're not getting any real value and, and things will probably get missed. The same goes for architects and engineers and, and folks that, you know, that you're bringing in to look, bring in people that have actually done this before in this industry. We'll get back to our panel in a moment, but first another word of thanks to our sponsors, and we hope you'll give them a closer look. Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing Equipment is the right choice for pro results. Whether it's for your pilot system or production line, their robust systems come fully equipped with everything you need to hit the ground running. Designed for easy setup and intuitive use, their brewhouse systems and cellaring equipment deliver uncompromising quality and reliability backed by a name you trust. So you can focus on what matters most, your beer. Visit BlickmanPro.com today. And we're brought to you by Fermentis. Try adding a cider to your brews. Fermentis, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, has made it really easy for you by developing four strains specifically for cider. Whether you want a crisp, sweet, or fruity cider, discover the Safe Cider range. The four cider strains are available in five gram pouches, the perfect size for you. Just make your choice or try them all. To learn more about how Fermentis can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentis.com. 
And we're brought to you by ABS Commercial, a full-service brewery outfitter, proud to offer brew houses, tanks, and small parts to brewers across the country. They stock equipment ranging from three barrel to 90 barrel and offer custom designed equipment up to 900 barrels. Contact one of their brewery consultants today by emailing sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your brewery project. And you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts watching replays of past NanoCon seminars plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nano plus for more details. I, I imagine they're two different buckets, right? But if somebody was going to start from scratch versus take over an existing operation, is, is there one that is a better option than another? Or are they just too different to, to be compared? I mean, if I could, John, I think it's a matter of yeah. resource management. It's, it's what are your core competencies? What are the resources that you come to the table with? And, you know, how do you want to start a business? They're just very different animals. And I'll stray away from the animal thing here. But, um, you know, it's if you're limited on budget, but you are deep, on time and skill set, maybe taking over an existing facility if you've actually done your homework and you think that you know the reason it went under was for for things that you can overcome with your core competencies is is the best way to go. If if you have you know deep pockets and you want to move fast and you want to take over you know maybe a brownfield and it's in an area that's already zoned and permitted and has a CUP, heck, man, you, you might be able to get up and running as soon as TTB and ABC can, can get that license for you. But if, if you're, you know, maybe short on, short on cash and long on time and you've identified a place that you can build by hand because your core competencies include construction management and the team of internals, maybe it's best to, to start rehabbing a building or from scratch in, in a property that doesn't cost much. But for me, it's that there's no right answer other than to be very introspective, look within and understand what your current core competencies and your current access to resources are and identify how to best use those in the project that you want to create. Michael, does that, does that score with you? Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, I'd lend to try and, you know, look for value. And sometimes there's, there are, there is some really good values in that people that probably shouldn't have been in the brewing industry got into it and invested in be built beautiful facilities that you could probably acquire at a discounted price versus what it would cost you to build it today. So if that the other, all things being equal, in other words, the location that is, is a solid location, it's, you know, that it meets all of your litmus tests of what you want out of a brewery, I would tend to buy one that's already built versus one that I'm going to try and develop because when you buy something you build, you know, that's already there, you pretty much know what you're paying for it. When you go to build your own, there's always, you know, additional hidden costs that come out of nowhere that kind of 
blow your budget up a little bit or delay, especially with supply chain issues, getting equipment in. And, you know, during COVID, people were having difficulty, you know, ordering equipment and it was being delayed for months, if not, you know, years. Um, so um, I'm always tend to, you know, go towards a known quantity versus an unknown. And Mike, maybe the counterpoint to that is what is your long-term vision? If, you're, if your vision is short-term, having a brewery, absolutely, I'm all with you. But if your long-term vision is to, to build something that's efficient, that's flexible, that has bandwidth that you'd like to be able to grow, think about all the limiting edges of the sandbox when you go into a place that's already there. And, and so I think vision comes into play a lot here as well. Agreed. Matthew, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's a relative, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a relative sort of, of concept. It, it, it is, it's, is there value here? Does this fit with my long-term goals? You know, as someone who just got done building a brewery, we didn't even consider buying, a, you know, another location. There had previously been a, another brewery in the city where we're located. So, but we, for strategic and sort of business purposes, we, we didn't, we didn't want to do that. Now we're running into a situation where we've got real constraints in the seller and our ability to make enough beer as quickly as we need to. And so we're sort of scrambling. And in this instance, we may end up looking at acquiring someone that may not have performed the way that they thought they were going to because you know buying an operating brewery with supply chain issues right now is easier than waiting on six to nine to 12 months to get you know to get tanks and stuff oh you're just talking to the wrong people matthew you can get you some <laughs> i may need to talk to you after this <laughs> and anyway. uh, yeah you guys uh have each other's emails um can meet over at the elephant buffet um <laughs> it, it, so let's say a, a, a small brewer has decided okay i'm going to take over in an existing uh uh spot and you know maybe it's just somebody who's getting ready to retire um are there things that both parties should be thinking about about how an acquisition should be structured matthew well as a as a buyer, <clears throat> I almost always want to buy the assets. And as a seller, I almost always want to sell the, the stock or the membership interest for, and, th and those, that decision is purely dictated based on tax treatment of being able to depreciate assets on the buyer side versus getting some capital gains treatment on the seller side so you have those two kind of conflicting positions right out of the gate now there's ways around that it's a function of the purchase price making adjustments and there's certain tax elections that you can make but at the end of the day you know both parties need to get out of the transaction um, you know there needs to be a, a, an expectation where as a buyer i feel like i'm getting value and as a seller i feel like i'm you know i'm i'm realizing you know, a, a premium, whether that's a premium in the purchase price or a premium in the relief of my you know, house not being used as, as collateral for a loan. Um, and then from there, you know, you, you get into 
term sheets and due diligence and all the fun stuff. And, and hopefully, you know, you end up at a closing table with you, the buyer getting a set of keys and um, a lot of hopes and dreams and the, the, the seller getting a, a check. And Michael, from your standpoint, what about you know, transferring of various paperwork or, you know, moving licenses around? Well, that's an important consideration in the whole transfer is timing. You know, everybody wants to say, oh, yeah, I, we have this deal. We've done our due diligence. Okay, now we want to close on the deal. Well, it's not that easy because if you didn't allow for proper timing of transfer of the alcoholic beverage licenses, both the state licenses and the federal uh, brewer's permit, um, brewer's notice, um, you know, you have to allow the, for time for that to occur. So that has to be kind of, you have to have almost built in a, a timetable in the, the process so that certain be, uh, benchmarks are being met so that we filed the TTB application early enough. We filed the ABC application or depending on what state you're in, uh, the liquor board application so that they come out at the time you're about ready wanting to close. Because, you know, you cannot produce beer in this country without having the proper permits and governments don't always want to work at the same timeline that commercial industry does. That makes sense. Yeah. So, John, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. So I always believe in, you know, in, in a deal like laying out all of the tasks that have to be accomplished, you know, not just the regulatory, the, you know, all of the different things that have to be done, certain timelines for due diligence, you know, for raising their capital, for, you know, completing all the lease assignments. There's all kinds of things that have to be done to transfer those assets once you've decided on a deal that you're doing. Um, and you need to build in a, a, a timetable to get all of those done. And some of that is regulatory. Yeah, Mike, I mean, to a degree, it almost makes sense sometimes in these scenarios where it doesn't make sense to bring on a project manager. I mean, the, the value add for someone who's good at putting together the Gantt chart and the punch list and keeping it all on track, you know, can save well more than, than it costs to have someone doing that for, you know, three to five hours a week. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of a non-traditional thing, but I've in the past used project managers for all sorts of odd tasks where I didn't have the bandwidth to personally be doing the administrative tracking. And man, acquisitions are no different than a construction project. There's just as many dominoes all trying to be set up. Yeah, especially if you're using SBA financing or something along those lines, the loopholes, I mean, the, the hurdles you have to jump through are just amazing. I thought you were supposed to jump over the hurdles. I didn't know I could go through them, Mike. No, sometimes you're, that's exactly it. You're supposed to jump over them, but sometimes yeah. you just have to smash through them. Yeah, well, I'm that's sure. how you make it onto YouTube though. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little above. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> one of the things that, that, that occurred to me when, when you're talking about timing is at some point, keys are going to be handed over and there's the expectation that beer is going to be made. And John, I, I, I wonder, cause I, I, I'm sure you've done this before. Um, 
yeah, and and Matthew, you can probably jump in on this too, though, of using somebody else's equipment. You know, uh, every brew house, you know, even if it's manufactured by the same place, uh, is going to be different and is going to have its own uh, ticks and quirks and everything else in between. Um, how 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 much time should somebody be spending learning the brew rig that they're about to buy? The rest of their life. I mean, honestly, <laughs> it, it's it's one of those. How long is an elephant's memory? Yeah, exactly. There we go. Um, but it, it's one of those things that that we're always working with. We're always getting used to. And you know, I think as brewers, a lot of us, you know, end up getting caught up in the romance of the brew house. But man, we're just making soup in there. Like the real magic starts when you start understanding the way your cellar performs, how you ferment, how you play with the yeast and how you really come into a symbiotic relationship with, with these organisms that you're trying to coax into to making this beautiful beverage on the back end. Um, the brew house, yeah, it, the brew house takes a technician and you'll always be getting better at it, hopefully. You should always be questioning what you did last time, taking good notes, evaluating how you can be more efficient or how you can how you can dial it in to, to have these little nuances. But the real key for me, it's always getting to know how your biology interacts with your, your personal cellar, with your water, with, with the way you treat cooling and warming and all those kind of things. And so it, as much value and credence as, as I can give to getting used to your system before you really push out beer to the public, that task never ends. You know, the best you can do is really paint in broad strokes to begin with and try and use that scientific method to adjust one thing at, at a time and tweak it in. But I love telling the story of the fact that we're, we're early on in this journey and we're trying to get better. So give us your feedback as customers. You know, this is our first brew. This is our second brew. This is our 95th brew, you know, uh, I think, I think if you're open and honest and vulnerable about the fact that we're just starting on this system, but we've been practicing, you know, as, as long as we have on other systems and on our friends' rigs and all this stuff, that there's a lot to be said for that. And that was, that used to be a big part of the romance of craft beer. So I would say, yeah, spend your time, try your recipes out on, on your friends' kits, on your, on your pilot kit, your homebrew stuff. But that practice of dialing in and getting better. If it ever stops, you should hand the keys over anyways. Yeah, I don't brew. Um, we, we, we hired professional brewers to do that. But yeah. as a company, we, one of our sort of core, you know, objectives is to remain curious in everything that we're doing. And we, we talk about that in meetings and, and we try to apply that to every aspect of the brewery's operations, whether it's, you know, how we are engaging with a potential customer in the tap room to how we're engaging with a potential retail partner in the market to, you know, how we're, how we're brewing beer. And, and I think we have been incredibly blessed to find two brewers that are incredibly curious about every aspect of what they're doing. And so, I mean, I, I agree with John, like, I don't want our guys to ever feel like they've 
mastered anything in the back because if if you do if you say that or if you believe that one you probably haven't and two it, yeah it it is time to hang it up um so uh, you obviously have got to have technical competency to operate the equipment and the machinery and know how to you know how things work um but but so much of this is incredibly nuanced and it can be um you know, impacted by all sorts of different externalities that uh, that I that I hope it's just an ongoing sort of, of quest, and and we we remain curious through through every aspect of it. And John, maybe more back to your original intent of the question, and really yeah. living in Matthew's world is put together that pro forma and plan for some scrap. If, yeah. if you're not planning to dump a brew here and there, wow, that's that's arrogant. And it either, it's either arrogant or selfish. And it, if it's selfish, you're pushing it onto the customer. If it's arrogant, it's just blind. Right. And, yeah. and the same goes for, for barrel programs. I mean, this, uh, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to about starting up a barrel program, especially a sour program, and they don't plan for 25% loss. And you really should. You should have the, uh, the courage to have that fireman's axe and run it right into the head of that barrel. It's, it's, a really sad but gratifying feeling you know <laughs> it's like shit i don't know what to do with this well let's let loose our emotion on it and then let's walk away from it because the more and more you tinker with something that you know you really don't you can't stand behind the closer and closer you get to saying well maybe this is good enough and if maybe this is good enough is your business plan then the business really isn't good enough John, one of the things I yeah, that we were talking about is, and it's one of the assets that people really don't think about when they're buying an existing brewery is the human resources and their key employees that they're retaining um, when they go to buy a business. Because that's one of the things they really need to evaluate is like, hey, if we have this exceptional brewer, that's really the brand has been built around. You got to make sure that when you're buying that brewery, you're going to be able to continue to contract with that brewer to produce, you know, be your head brewer. Um, you know, uh, if, you know, a lot of times people underestimate the value of certain key employees in a business that they're acquiring. And they, you know, part of that due diligence is identifying who those key employees are and why they're key, and then making sure that you're going to be able to keep them on. Um, because if they, if there's an attrition rate right after the, you purchase the business, um, you know, that can really damage the value of that business going forward. And honestly, sometimes it's the real upside of it too. I mean, to speak to a single example, you know, when, when Alchemy and Science purchased uh, Angel City, they had a couple employees and one guy, he was not a brewer. Kid could brew for sure. He, he's he's a good brewer, but he wasn't there as a brewer. But he was kind of holding the place together. He did all the things. He was the back end, the maintenance guy, all this stuff. And there was question on whether or not to keep him. And I, I joined into that company uh, maybe six months or, or a year down on the road. And they were asking, well, what's the deal with this guy? What's your thought? And I got to know him. I'm like, this is, this is your key employee. This is one of the best people that you possibly could have had. And finding someone who's not only adept in brewing, but a maintenance technician, a backend, can run reliability as you grow. I mean, they lucked into that and they had the, uh, the patience to say, well, let's, let's understand this guy first. And he's still with the company 
His name is Joe Mokley. He's awesome. Woo, Joe. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, he was one of the key parts of that acquisition, in my personal opinion. And he wasn't, he wasn't looked at as part of the deal until after we kind of got up and running. And this guy with his history and the fact that he came in and wasn't truly valued as much in the previous company, he, he grew to be and still is one of the key employees of that company today. That I, I love the human element of it as well, because that's something that can, that can be lost um, amid the paperwork. Uh, and I'm and I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. One one of the things that I that it, it just sort of has occurred to me as well, and and I don't want to sound fatalistic, but I imagine that when it comes time for somebody to sell, the better the paperwork, the better their understanding, the better their um, appreciation of the people. Having all of that done in advance, and and by that I guess I mean you know keeping regular records, you know, writing stuff down so that with the eventuality of one day, things could change. And I know people start a brewery and they say, I'm going to do this forever kind of thing. Um, but how helpful is it from the seller standpoint to really have all of the ducks in, in, in order before you get to that point of putting your business on the market? I don't know if I'm asking this in, a, in, a, in an elegant way, but. I think it's a critical piece that the seller be organized and professional and be able to be in a position to complete due diligence efficiently. You know, if they need a copy of the lease, they're obviously going to need to see the lease for the brewery or any key documents should be easily deposit, you know, available in a repository. And I would think Matthew and John would agree the, the more organized the seller is that can help complete that due diligence process quickly, you know, the more likely the deal will go through. Yeah, that's right. The more likely it'll go through. It also keeps costs down, um, time, people scrambling to find, you know, some contract that's crammed in a box somewhere as opposed to scanned in and housed in the cloud. Um, having to recreate connect dots, you know, recreating board minutes, for example, from a meeting that took place, but, you know, you had a quorum, but it wasn't, anyway, it, 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 is, it is unbelievably important. And ultimately from the seller's perspective, the more organized you are, um, one, it increases the likelihood the deal is gonna go through, but it also increases the likelihood that you're gonna get a price that, that you want, you know, and as a buyer, you know, I'm going through due diligence. Every everywhere I perceive risk, that is dollars coming off the table in my offer. So I, I it's it's unbelievably important. And and in that vein, John, in in the notes that you sent me beforehand, um, you even brought up, you know, was all of the existing work done uh, at a brewery completed under permit? And if not, what areas uh, of work were completed under permitted? Um, even having that information, I imagine, is going to be really critical when when somebody comes walking through it's hugely critical um and, and you know all of these things i think layer on to one other key point and it's removing as much emotion as possible from this transaction if people can talk without emotion obviously both sides are going to go through emotion ups and downs of 
of a sell or a purchase, but taking the emotion away from, you know, one side saying these jabronis don't even have a copy of this or whatever else you're going to say, like it, it just makes, it makes it more transactional and it opens, opens up the window a little bit. So you see a clearer and clearer picture of everything that you're getting into from both sides. And I think the, the more we can take away from the distracting emotions, the, the easier all of these things get. So we can focus on, you know, the emotions that are relevant in, in the process. Is there a brewery out there for everybody? I'm thinking if you, if you remove the emotion from it and you just start to see the red flags or it doesn't pass the smell test or, you know, whatever, uh, uh, we want to use that in, in, in that place there. Um, are there, are there options these days? Is it, you know, I think there's all kinds yeah, of options out there. Um, I mean, I get clients calling me different sizes, wanting to sell their breweries or new people wanting to start a new brewery. And, and, you know, it's really interesting in the brewing industry and, and this is the very easiest way to get into it is a thing called an alternating proprietorship um, where you can come in and rent time and space inside of another brewery and develop your brand by renting the equipment. And you don't even have to invest in building a brewery and you can be licensed as a brewery and produce your own beer under your own bond and enjoy and get into the industry at very low cost. So there, there's, an, there's an avenue for everyone depending on what their budget is, what their goals are, and, and what they're trying to achieve. Matthew, any follow-ups on that? No, I, I mean, I agree. AP is a, is a great way to kind of dip your toe in and, and get a brand out in the market to see, you know, kind of where you are. Um, it, it's also a strategy that, you know, existing breweries can, can utilize as well to sort of bridge the gap from a production perspective as they grow. Um, I'll say one of the things that we're seeing is, you know, kind of the sort of micro acquisitions, not the big deals that get reported by, you know, the, the national media outlets, the brew bounds of the world, but really kind of sort of strategic regional acquisitions is, uh, are, those are starting to kind of pick up um, as people are moving around. They they see, you know, taproom retail strength in one market that is a market they're not in. And it's easier to go over there and buy somebody that, that has been, you know, entrenched in the community and, and is doing well or wants to get out for some reason, as opposed to, you know, starting a, another brewery altogether. But yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I agree with Michael. I, there's, it depends on what your goals and objectives are, but there are, there are lots of paths forward for people that, that want to get in, whether they want to start and build from the ground up or whether they want to acquire or whether they want to expand. Yeah. And, and I can't remember who said it earlier, you know, a lot of people got into this during its phase as a, a pretty strong growth market growth industry yeah. for reasons that they believe were going to be financially relevant. And, you know, you might be that you know, one in a million, or I guess, this these days one in a thousand breweries that get that that buyout but a lot of these investors did not have an intention of being in the beer industry for a long time and as the market is somewhat maturing and the acquisitions and the buyouts are falling off the table 
I believe there's quite a few opportunities out there for someone who's passionate, wants to sink their feet deep into a business to take something that may not be performing incredibly well and make it relevant in their community, make it relevant as a business, you know, most likely if it wasn't making money for the people who make money, it's not going to turn over and be a, you know, a money printing machine. But if you want to get into this, the same reason people were getting into it 20, 25 years ago, because they're passionate and they see a reason that this is going to provide value both to them personally and to their community. There's loads and loads of breweries out there that are interested in slowly walking away from the market that did not prove to be a financial windfall. It sounds like clear headed, but passionate are two things to strive for. <laughs> well, yeah, passionate, hardworking, and clear headed. Usually it'll get you at least one step forward. Final thoughts, Michael, Matthew, John. I, mean, I guess my final thought is I've always encouraged as many clients as I can that want to get into the industry to find a way to work in it before they actually acquire a brewery. Because the more knowledge you have about the industry at a commercial level rather than a hobbyist level, you'll be much better off in any endeavor you do. You learn about distribution, you learn about how it all works, you learn about pricing structures, you, you learn about a lot of things just being in and around and working in a brewery. And that will help you, especially if you haven't been in the industry prior to, to acquiring or, or building a brewery, will save you a lot of mistakes. Yeah, I, my last bit of advice would be surround yourself with the brightest, most educated, not necessarily technical, you know, degree educated, but industry specific educated people um, to help you. I mean, it, it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very sort of fraternal open industry and people are always willing to offer help, take people up on that, but, but surround yourself with really smart people before you do anything. I'd agree and stay humble. The more that you're willing to be vulnerable and ask questions, you'll find that this community is open arms to helping out. You know, we've all got a taste for elephant and we're there to share the plate. John, Michael, Matthew, thanks so much for being on the show this month and for sharing your expertise. And really, I, I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you, John. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. Have you taken over an existing nanobrewery? What were your challenges and how did you overcome them? Email us. It's nano at byo.com. And I'll invite you to head over to byo.com slash nano podcast. There you can subscribe to the newsletter and the magazine, and you can catch up with great pro brewing content. New episodes of this show are released on the 15th of every month. So subscribe now and never miss a show when it's released. And you can do us a favor by leaving feedback on your podcast platform of choice or by emailing us at nano at byo.com. You can also check in with us on all of the BYO social media channels. And as always, thank you to this episode's sponsors. Blickman Pro Brewing. 
With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing Equipment is the right choice for pro results. Whether it's for your pilot system or production line, their robust systems come fully equipped with everything you need to hit the ground running. Designed for easy setup and intuitive use, their brewhouse systems and cellaring equipment deliver uncompromising quality and reliability backed by a name you trust, so you can focus on what matters most, your beer. Visit BlickmanPro.com today. And we're brought to you by Fermentis. Try adding a cider to your brews. Fermentis, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, has made it really easy for you by developing four strains specifically for cider. Whether you want a crisp, sweet, or fruity cider, discover the Safe Cider range. The four cider strains are available in five gram pouches, the perfect size for you. Just make your choice or try them all. To learn more about how Fermentis can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentis.com. And we're brought to you by ABS Commercial, a full-service brewery outfitter, proud to offer brew houses, tanks, and small parts to brewers across the country. They stock equipment ranging from three barrel to 90 barrel and offer custom designed equipment up to 900 barrels. Contact one of their brewery consultants today by emailing sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your brewery project. And you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts watching replays of past NanoCon seminars plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nanoplus for more details. I'm John Hall, and you can still find me weekly behind the microphone on the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast, as well as Steal This Beer. You can find those where podcasts are found, and I hope you'll tune in. Our theme music was created by Scott McCampbell, and we thank him for that. And once again, be sure to check out byo.com slash nanopodcast for all of your nano brewing needs. And for now, we wish you all the best for a small but successful brew day. <laughs>